John chapter 4, verse 1 through 26. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making, bap- making and baptizing disciples more than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and d- departed again from Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jesus, having no dealings with Samaritans, for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans, Jesus answered him, If you knew the gift of God and who it, who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give them will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus told her, said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming, whether neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not, do not know. We worship what we know, for, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and no one here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. It's great to see everybody here this morning. Thank you all for coming out today. Um, we're going to uh, we're gonna go through John 4, uh, verses 1 through 26 that Silas just read. But before that, I just want to, uh, I just want to give you a reminder, and uh, hopefully, hopefully you won't forget to do this, but continue to pray for our, uh, our people in Baton Rouge. Uh, it's been continuously on my mind this week and, and really running across my news feed and all of that, and I, I'm sure it has been yours as well. Uh, but continue to pray for these people. Don't forget that, that in the midst of, these, uh, of, of all this that's happening, and don't forget the people that are in these relief efforts. And uh, so there's a long road ahead of these people, and uh, there's really a lot that can, that can take place within the next couple of months. Uh, many of us will have the opportunities to comfort and to encourage and to help those that are, uh, that are in need in the months to come. So, but through this tragedy, I've, uh, I've actually seen some really cool things. I've, I've been able to see, and I, I think a lot of you 
who were over there yesterday were able to see this too, some unity amongst the Baton Rouge people where, where there was a lot of division a couple of weeks ago through all of the things that were going on. We're, we're getting to see this community and this unity come together. And so uh, I would pray that, uh, that we would continue to lift these people up and would pray that Christ would be proclaimed through this tragedy and through the things that are going on there and that we would be able to, to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, through that tragedy. And so today we're going to keep walking through the, uh, the book of John. Uh, and actually, I was talking with Blake earlier this week. Sometimes it's, uh, it's kind of difficult when you're, when you're preaching a sermon and when you're, going, when you're getting into something that you really have to dig for those spiritual truths and you really have to, you really have to dive in to be able to understand uh, what's going on and, and to be able to preach truth through that. And then some weeks where the text that you're preaching is just saturated with the gospel and it's filled with spiritual truths and filled with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this week has really been one of those and it's been a, just a blessing to be able to go through this. And so I've been, I've been praying all week really that I would communicate this clearly as I've seen it this week, that the truths that Jesus Christ is displaying through getting to know and being relational with this woman that they would come out at us and that I would be able to communicate that clearly. So I pray that, I pray that that's uh, what's going to be happening today. And so uh, as I was preparing this week, I would say that my goal is that we would see and that we would say like John chapter 1 verse 14, that we would say we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And so that's that's what John sees, and that's what he wants us to see. And so we've seen that through his purpose. We, go, we talk about his purpose every week. Uh, that's in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. It said, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we've got this evangelic and apologetic purpose. And we're going to see both of these displayed very clearly today. So I want you to see that, and I want you to see that in the text that, that we're about to go through. So uh, getting into the text, last week uh, we were kind of in John's commentary. Depending on where you put the quotation marks, it's either uh, John's commentary of what's going on in, uh, you know, in chapter 3, or it's the end of John the Baptist's conversation. And so either way, we're seeing that uh, we're seeing these things happen in Judea. And so John the Baptist, from the womb, from the time that he was born, was sent to proclaim the name of Christ, to make way for Christ. And so his disciples now are, like we've learned two weeks ago, are, going to Christ, are starting to go to Christ. And are starting to, he's starting to fade into the back. And we see this beautiful picture that he gives of the friend of the bridegroom. How the friend of the bridegroom much like the best man is to organize the entire wedding and is to point to the groom and is to fade into the back as the groom and the bride make way. And so that's, that's where we're going to pick up here, and that's, that's kind of what's going on at the start of this. And so in verse 1, we're going to see, he says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and, and departed again for Galilee. And so the Pharisees have been questioning John the Baptist's motives from the very beginning. 
they, they see this man that comes out of the wilderness and is, and is talking and is speaking all these truths and preparing the way for Christ, and they don't like this because he's disrupting a lot of the things that are going on in, in their lives. He's, he, he even calls them brood of vipers and, and really a lot of things that just rub them the wrong way. And so these Pharisees, they've been questioning him from the beginning, and now Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than him because like we saw in John chapter 3, they're, they're going to from John the Baptist to Jesus. And so the Pharisees really don't like this. This poses a really, a really bad problem for them. And so Jesus doesn't have the best track record with these Pharisees either. I mean, you remember in chapter 2 when they're trying to make, when they're in the temple trying to make monetary gains for themselves and trying to, trying to do things in order to glorify themselves and, and, to, and to have, have the ability to, to make money off of something that's going on. Jesus says, oh no, he, he drives, he drives them, them out of the temple and he drives all of the, all the things that they're doing away. And so Jesus is not a, a well-liked person among these Pharisees either. And so Jesus is, he finds out that they, that they're, that they know that he's baptizing more disciples than John. And so he's leaving the city. But I want to argue today that he is not leaving this place out of fear. He's not leaving Judea out of fear. Because in chapter 3, right before this, we see that he's above all, that he is given all, and that he saves all who believe in his name. And so he is in control of this situation. I don't want to, to convey for any small amount of time that he is not in complete control of this situation. But he, and he doesn't explicitly say this, but, but what I gather from the text is that it's not, it's not his time yet. And so he's in control and he knows that there's things to come, and he knows that, that there's appointments to be made, and that there's people that he needs to see, and that it's not, it's not his time yet to go. And so he has an appointment to make with this woman at Samaria, and he has to see this woman. And so Jesus leaves again for Galilee, okay? And so you've got uh, just kind of uh, what modern-day Israel, what we would call, on the southern end, would be Judea, and the northern end would be Galilee, and then this little strip in between is Samaria. And so Samaria is in between, in between these places. And so uh, we see one of Jesus' clear purposes unfold in verse 4 when he starts to talk. He says, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So Jesus is, uh, Jesus is about to head north, uh, going back to Galilee where, where, he, where he's going, and he needs to go through Samaria. But not only does he need to, it says he had to pass through Samaria. So this is very intentional, very intentional. I want you to see this. The translation uh, into the Greek is actually he was required to go through Samaria. So he, he has to go through here, and he, he knows this. It's a very intentional thing. And it's not, this is not a geographical issue. Like, he could have gone many other routes, uh, just like most Jews would actually do to avoid these uh, unclean Samaritans. They, they didn't want to be in contact with these people at all, so they would actually take routes around Samaria to be able to go away from them. And so he's not going to come upon this woman by happenstance, he's in control, and he's the one that's, that's controlling it. He's the one that's, that's uh, going to approach her in that way. 
And so he comes to this field in Sychar where, where Jacob's well is. And uh, if you want to look at that, it's mentioned briefly in Genesis 33. And uh, basically what happened is Jacob, Jacob came and pitched a tent here and, it, and erected an altar there. And so he had, he had a well, that he had dug a well there as well so that it would be, so that he could uh, provide water for the people around there. And so uh, he walks up to this particular well, Jesus does, and he sits at this well and he's tired because he's been, he's been traveling all day, right? And so it's the, it's the sixth hour right now, which is from, you know, uh, they took their time from, from the time that, that daylight started. And so now it's the sixth hour, so it's about noon or so. And Jesus is tired. I mean, it's hot. And he's, been, and he's been walking. And so he walks up to this particular well and he sits beside it. And then verse 7 says, And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And so Jesus is immediately engaging in conversation with this woman. And throughout the story, he's going to reveal himself more and more and more to this Samaritan woman. He's going to reveal himself over and over to her. And so what's the significance with this? And I'm sure many of you have heard this before, but we, we've got to go through this. We've got to, we've got to cover this to be able to see the, the importance of this. Okay, so who are, who are these Samaritans that, that we're talking about? What's the cultural significance here? Samaritans were Jews that had remained in the northern kingdom of Israel after... Uh, after the Assyrians took them captive in 722 B.C. And so the Assyrians take the people captive. There's, there's some people that are remaining, and they begin to intermarry among the pagan idol-worshiping Gentiles, which was, which was a direct command from God not to do. But they begin to intermarry with these people, and uh, one thing that the Jews really despised was any type of association with these, with these Gentile people. And so they're, they're intermarrying among these people, and the Jews hated this. This cultural association with these other people just made the Jews hate this. So these are, this is a half-breed of Jews. These are Jews and Gentiles uh, mixed. And so uh, not only that, but they only accepted the Pentateuch, which was the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so they only accepted, uh, they only accepted the first five books of the, of, of the Jewish Old Testament and basically rejected the, the rest of the inspired scripture. And so they believed that the central place of worship was Mount Gerizim, which we're going to talk about in just a little bit. Mount Gerizim is, uh, is, where, is where they said that they were, they were to worship, and then the Jews knew that it was Jerusalem where, where God had called them to, to worship and to erect the, the temple. And so there was lots of animosity here. Uh, lots of things going on that, that I mean, this is, this is something that absolutely shouldn't happen. Jesus should not approach this woman and should not talk to her. And so uh, this Samaritan woman, she was outcast, she was uneducated, and she was immoral, as we're going to see from the text. And so all of these things would make, would make any Jew want to run the other direction and not even, not even engage in conversation with her. So, but Jesus purposefully engages with her. Purposefully. And so this is one of the reasons why he had to pass through Samaria. 
And so he sends all of his disciples into the town. Do you think it really takes all of these disciples to gather all of this food, to gather food to eat? I wouldn't think that it would take that many. But he sends all the disciples into town so that he can be by himself with this woman. And so he's intentional on going through Samaria to this well, and he breaks all of these cultural taboos and barriers to be able to speak with this woman. And so he says, give me a drink. He says, I'm tired and I'm thirsty and I want some water from your bucket. I don't want water from, from the well. I want the water that's coming in, in from your bucket. And so the woman, who's probably shocked at this point, says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Because Jews don't talk to Samaritans. And rabbis especially don't talk to Samaritans. She probably knew by the way that he was dressed that he was, that he was a Jew. And so Jesus is not even going to play around with this. Jesus is not even entertaining this. And he's going to dismiss this immediately. He's not going to allow that cultural barrier to, to be between them. It says in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So we want to see this. Jesus abruptly changes the path of conversation there. You see that? I mean, she says, she says how is it that you a Jew are talking to me? And he said, I mean, he just completely changes the subject to, to this living water. <laughs> and so he's not going to let this cultural wall stand between him and this woman. He's not going to let this happen. He's going he's to pursue her anyway. And so, in fact, he's never going to bring this up again. It's never going to come back into the, into the conversation at all. And so he says, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew that he sent me, if you only knew who's saying this to you, he's pointing everything to himself. He's pointing it to himself then you would ask and I would give you living water. Living water. Water that nourishes. Water that satisfies. Water that sustains us. And water that quenches us. Like, this is, if you would only ask, I would give you this living water. And to me, he's just echoing some of the things that he said last week. He said, I'm above all, and God gives the Spirit to me without measure, and I can give you this living water. Like, I am in control of this situation, and I am over all, and I can give you this. But she's going to stay on the surface, a lot like we try to do. She's going she's gonna to stay here. Jesus is trying to dive deeper, but she's going to stay on the surface. She can't understand this. And she says, but sir, how are you going to get this living water? You don't even have a bucket. Like, how are you going to get living water? You don't, you don't have anything to draw water with. Like, what are, you, what are you doing? And if you recall, it's going to be just like Nicodemus in John chapter 3. So let's go back a little bit to, to Nicodemus. Nicodemus says, I know you're from God because nobody could do the signs that, that you're doing apart from being from God. And so Christ goes straight to the heart of the issue immediately with Nicodemus. And he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, excuse me, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To which Nicodemus responds in the same way. He said, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
And Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And so that's where we are with this woman. She's, she hasn't been born of the Spirit. She can't possibly understand the things that are going on uh, that Jesus is talking about. She can't understand this concept of living water that Jesus is talking about. And so Jesus says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, how am I going to do that? I gotta be, I've got to go back into my mom's womb. Like, what, how am I going to do that? And then Jesus says, I'll give you living water. He says, I'm here to give you living water. And this woman says, how could you possibly do that? You don't even have a bucket to draw this water with. And so where do you get this living water that you speak of? I'm not really sure about this, but I mean, from what I'm reading here, you can probably see like some of the sarcasm coming out in, in what she's saying. Like she's very sarcastic in this when she's, when she's talking. She says, okay, so you have this living water. Like where do, you, where do you get it from? Where do you get this living water from? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Like, are you really going to come and tell me that you're greater than the guy that came and dug this well for us? Like, he's, he's the one that, that dug this well. And as we can see, and as we're going to see more in a minute, this woman, she's, she's hard, and she's calloused. Like, she's, she's had five husbands, and, and the guy that she's with now is not her husband. She's, she's hardened to the gospel. She's hardened to the truth. And so she's going to come back immediately with this defense mechanism, this sarcasm, and she's going to challenge Jesus' authority. She said, are you greater than the man that gave us this will? He's the one that supplied us with this water. And maybe this is, maybe this is where, like, you're coming from today if you're sitting here or if you're listening on this video uh, you say, how can Christ love me? Like, how can, how can this happen? I'm, you're hardened. I've been living in this mess that I'm in for a long time, for a very long time, and I've been looking at these, this Jesus that church people talk about, and there's no way that he can forgive me for what I've done, and there's no way that, that he can satisfy my soul. What authority does this Jesus have? Like, who is this Jesus? Like, when, what, what type of authority does he have? So Jesus is going to respond immediately to that. In verse 13, he says, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And Jesus says, Yes. Immediately, Are you superior to Jacob? Yes, I'm superior to him. And the gift of living water that I have, that I, give to you, that I want to give to you, is superior to him as well. Because whoever drinks of this living water will never be thirsty again. And this is going to become a spring of water, a permanent and consistent flow of water. What's a spring? A spring shoots out of the ground. And so it's going to continuously be shooting up and allowing us to be able to to, to obtain eternal life through Jesus Christ. It's, it's that fountain of immeasurable amounts of drinks that continue to satisfy your thirst. Not that you're going to drink of it once and completely be satisfied, but that He will supply it and that He'll allow you to continuously drink from that and continuously grow in Him and know Him. 
And so this is a good promise. He says, yes, I'm superior to Jacob. You have this thirst. You have this, this longing in your heart, this thirst to have this water. And I can provide that for you. I have the water to satisfy that thirst and the water that you need to be able to live. And so that's what, that's what he's telling this woman here. But she can't understand it. She doesn't get it. She's hard. She's callous. She doesn't get it. And I've been looking at this passage over the past week, and I'm, I'm just so burdened. I'm so burdened by it. Because Jesus, Jesus talks and he says, you'll never thirst again. You never have to run back to these things that are trying to fill this void in your life. These things that you want to, to just try to fill what's going on in your life. You never have to run back to these things that take up so much time and energy that you don't have to think about eternity. Like a lot of times people like to just cram their life full of things so that we don't even have to think about eternity. But you don't have to run back to that. You don't have to spend your time and your resources on things that just temporarily fill you up. Things that just temporarily fill voids in your life from being apart from Jesus Christ. You don't have to do that anymore. You, you don't have to continuously look forward to the next big vacation, your next big purchase, your next play toy, your next relationship. You don't have to look forward to these things anymore. He's got living water for you. He's going to quench your spiritual taste buds. You never have to look for those things again for satisfaction. And preparing for this week, I, I thought about a, uh, a friend of mine. And what I see is that his entire life is geared toward his next big purchase, his next vacation, his next weekend activity. And it hurts me so, it hurts me so deeply. I'm so burdened by this because I'm trying to, I, I want to tell him like Christ has living water. Just ask for this and let it fill that massive void in your life. And let it nourish you deeper than you can ever, ever, ever imagine. You see that you have to keep buying new things to try to make this pain go away, this, this thing that just can't be filled because you're so thirsty. You're thirsty. You need this water. And so I continue to pray for him in hopes that he, that he tastes this living water in the way that I've been able to and that only by the grace of God through Jesus Christ have I been able to taste that. And so I'm praying, praying and continuously praying for him in this situation. And so that's, that's what's been on my mind this week, just kind of as I'm, as I'm going through this text. And so how does this woman respond to this? She says to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So, okay, well, if you, I mean, if you have this amazing living water that you talk about, then I'd love to have it. I mean, you see, I'm tired of coming here every day. I'm tired of coming to this well. It's hot. It's noon. Most women will go to this well around dusk. They would, they would probably try to make it in the cooler part of the day when, when you wouldn't have to go and, and, you know, be so hot and have to deal with all the, all the things that, that come with the sun being out completely and all of that. And so she's probably going at noon. She's probably not wanting to deal with these other women. Like, you have to understand, like, this woman's been married five times and the person that she's with now is not her husband. Like, people talk. Just like they talk here, people talk about that. And I'm sure this woman is full of shame and doesn't want to, to go to this well at the same time that these other women are going. 
And so she has to go at noon. So what's she, what's she telling Jesus? She's like, if I don't have to go to this well, that'd be amazing. So I'll take whatever water you have to offer. Like, I'll take anything that you have to offer. And we have to continuously guard our hearts with this. Like this is... I mean, if it, this is the prosperity gospel laid, laid clearly out here. The health, wealth, and prosperity. Like, okay, Jesus, I'll take whatever you've got. I'll walk an aisle. I'll sign this card. I'll take this salvation that you're offering if it means gaining something in my case. If it means that my personal and physical needs are going to be met. If it means that if it helps me to get back on my feet financially, then yeah, I'll take this gospel. I'll take this for sure. And this is not the gospel. Christ sees the deadness of our heart. But let's be clear about this. He is pursuing this woman. He is relentlessly pursuing this woman, and he's being extremely uh, purposeful in doing that. He's pointing to himself as the living water, the spring of life, the well. It's welling up within him, and he's pouring out his grace upon grace upon grace. And so now we're going to see another abrupt change in the conversation again. And so we have Jesus uh, proclaiming himself as the prophet now. He proclaimed himself as the living water, and now he's going to show himself as the prophet. So in verse 16, Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. So the woman said, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. So this woman recognizes that Jesus is a prophet immediately. She recognizes that he knows everything about her. And I'm sure it probably freaks her out a little bit. So he's talking about this living water and she doesn't get it. So he's going to move on. He's not going back to this, to this illustration of living water. He's, he's not going back to that. He's going to move on. And he's not going to look back. And so he's starting to, he goes from living water and then he goes, he dives directly into our personal life. So this is, this is getting really personal. This is where he starts to, to get to the situation where, where he's being very intentional and very personal with her. And so this elicits a response, a response when she tries to skirt the issue by telling some of the truth. She says, I have no husband. And he says, yeah, that's true. But you've had five and now you have a boyfriend. It's not even your husband. So he's diving in and he's hitting home with her immediately. And I think that this is something that, that we can see. Obviously, we don't have the ability to look into people's lives and see everything about them without knowing them. But God has given us this unique ability to have community amongst one another. And so we have the unique opportunity in community groups to encourage one another. And then to also to probe deeper into, into the issues that are going on. Like if I'm in sin, there's a group of people to probe deeper into my life. And I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for our community groups here. And so if I'm in sin, I'm wanting to stay on the surface a lot. I mean, there's a lot of times when, I, when I'm trying to stay on the surface. I think that my sin is a, is a surface issue that's, that's not any, any deeper rooted. But that we know that that's not, that that's not right. We want to say that our sin is shallow, but many times it's, it's a heart problem. It's a, it's a bigger issue. It's something that people need to probe deeper into our lives to, to figure out. 
And so we need people around us to dig that out like a splinter, like that splinter stuck in there, but, and it hurts, but it's so necessary for people to go in and to see that deeply rooted sin recognized and placed at the foot of the cross and redeemed for his namesake. And so we can recognize the heart issue and then see that it's a lot deeper than, than the things that we're trying to say here. And so that's one of the major benefits of community group. And I, I think that that's so, it's so encouraging that, that in a church like this, like we get the opportunity, we're, we're close to one another, so we get the opportunity to dive in deeper to people's lives. And though it, it kind of stinks sometimes, it hurts, and it's, uh, you know, it, it really hurts sometimes, but we get the opportunity to, to really glorify the name of Christ by bringing up sin and things in, in each other's lives. So Jesus is, is doing that here. He's digging for that splinter. And like many of us do, she doesn't like it. It hurts. It's painful. It's painful for, her to, for him to bring that up. So she tries to get away from it, and she's going to change the subject again. Like it, it, seems like it's, it seems like this conversation is going on a rabbit trail, but it's really, it's really not. Jesus is being very personal with it and uh, very purposeful with it. And so the woman said to him, she's going to change the subject again. She said, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So, he turns it conver- so she turns it to a conversation about worship immediately. Okay, I see that you're a prophet. Let me bring up this controversial, uh, this controversial thing to, to be able to divert the attention away from myself. And so Jesus is going to go with her. He's going to graciously continue with this conversation. So she brings up Mount Gerizim, and that's a place where the Samaritans' worship of God takes place. And uh, if you want to, just a little side note, if you want to look into this, I thought this was really cool when we were studying this week, just to kind of connect back to uh, Nehemiah when we were studying through the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Manasseh was uh, the one that set up the temple for worship on Mount Gerizim. And if you remember, in the last chapter of Nehemiah, when he's pulling out beards and tearing out hair and stuff, and when he's angry with these people, Manasseh is the one who actually married Sanballat's daughter. And if you remember, Sanballat was the Horonite that had completely opposed uh, the, building of, the rebuilding of Jerusalem for the very, from the very beginning. So just kind of a connection there. So Manasseh is the one that married his daughter, and he's the one that actually set up this temple for worship that they're talking about on, on Mount Gerizim. And so, just a little cool side fact. I thought, I thought that'd be interesting to you guys just since we went through Nehemiah not too long ago. And so the Jews said, Samaritans mount, worship on Mount Gerizim. You Jews say that we should worship in Jerusalem. What do you say about that? Since you're this prophet, what do you say about that? But Jesus is not, he's not going to engage in the debate. He's not going to engage in that debate about what, what goes on and where, where it needs to go, but he's going to dive deeper again. He's going to probe deeper into the conversation. He, again, he's taking a surface issue, he's, he, a surface issue, this place of worship, and he's diving deeper. And so he said there's going to come a time that where you worship won't matter. It's going to be all about who you're worshiping. 
We worship what we know. He says we worship what we know. God has provided a way through the Jews for man to know and praise God. So he says we worship what we know. That's me. He's pointing to himself. He says, look, we worship what we know. The, the Jews have, God has provided through the Jews a Messiah, a Savior to come. And that's me. And so we worship what we know and you worship, you don't even, you worship what you don't even know. And so he makes it very clear that we're to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And so he's showing this woman very clearly, just like Nicodemus, that worship is in vain unless she's born again. You have to worship in spirit. So God is spirit, so we must worship him in spirit. And we've had a lot of, a lot of conversation here over the last couple of weeks about how God uh, initiates that, how God brings that into play. Like we must be born of the spirit, and God is the only one that can provide that. And so he tells her that we must worship him in spirit. And so then in chapter 3, verse 6, it says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And that's the only way. So that's what he's trying to display there. And he's saying in spirit and in truth. And that worship comes through trusting in the testimony of Christ and trusting in who Christ is and in the Scriptures. So believing that, like Colossians 1 says, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, that by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. The head of the church, the firstborn from the dead, all of the fullness of God dwells in him. Reconciles, he reconciles all things to himself and he makes peace by the blood of Christ. So that's what Colossians 1 says about him. We have to believe that that's, what, that that's what's being said about him. Just like we talked about last week, uh, there's this pluralistic, postmodern, me-centered theology that's going, that's going around right now and that's, that's been here for a while actually. And so it's saying that truth is relative and it's all in how you perceive things. But we have this truth that's laid out before us. And we have to worship Him in truth. We have to understand that He is telling the truth. We have to know that He's the overseer of all. That His cross made a way for our sins to be paid so that we can glorify the Father. And so that we can enjoy His sovereignty, His rule, and that we can enjoy His graciousness toward us. And why is that? It's not from our own doing, but, but because we have a Father, just like this text says, we have a Father who is seeking such people to worship Him. He is seeking people to worship Him all around us. So people such as an immoral, an indifferent, and a half-breed Jew that's a Samaritan woman, and he also at one time sought out a wretched rebellious Gentile sinner from Westlake. <laughs> and so and so I'm attesting to this and I know that you are too that he is gracious when he's dealing with us. And he's gracious when he's dealing with this woman. And guess what? He's not done yet. And so he's going to show himself now as the Messiah. In verse 25, Says the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. 
He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. So Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. And actually in the Greek, that, that saying right there is I who speak to you am. And we're going to see a lot of statements as we go through John about I am. Jesus says, I am this. I am the bread of life. And He's going to continue to walk through that. I am the vine. And so I who speak to you am. I am the Christ. Jesus has laid all of his cards out on the table here. He spoke of himself as the living water. She didn't understand that. She was kind of indifferent to that anyway. She didn't want to understand that. He revealed to her her deep, dark, locked up secrets that she has. A man that she's never seen revealed her entire life to her as a prophet. And so she still doesn't understand what, he, what he's doing. And then he gets with her and he says, I'm going to get on this level with you. He says, the Messiah that the people believe and anticipate, the Messiah that these people are talking about in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that you, that you study, the Messiah that these people are talking about, I'm right here in front of you. This is me. I'm here. And so what happens? We're led to believe that this woman believes, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more next week, and that many believe because of her testimony. Many believe because of what she said. She said, look, this man knows everything about me. Come and see this Christ. He must be the Christ. And these people believe. And when they see Jesus for themselves, they don't even have to trust in her testimony anymore because they see him for themselves and they believe in him for themselves. And I'm so thankful for a Jesus that is so, so gracious. He continued to pursue this woman over and over and over and through all of these different trails that she was trying to lead him down, but he continues to pursue her because the Father desires for people to worship him and he was seeking after her. And so some implications of, uh, of what we've gone through today. Uh, if you're here or if you're watching this, uh, this video, if you haven't tasted that living water, that living water that we talked about, that nourishes, that sustains, that <laughs> allows you to live, if you're constantly running to sex, to money, to your next job that you're going to get, to these new toys that you, that you have, these new purchases, uh, vacations, uh, looking forward and looking and anticipating vacation. I know that's, that's something with me a lot of times that I have to guard my heart with, especially with duck season coming up. Like I'm constantly looking toward the weekend. Like I want to I wanna look toward that weekend and I want to see, I, I just, that's all I, I just want to, I want to be in that. And I don't want to, I don't want to even consider the week going up to that. If you're looking forward to that all the time, if you're looking forward to alcohol, to drugs, and if you constantly find your identity in these things, I'm here to tell you that you're not going to find satisfaction in that. That there's going to be a time when you're just going to need more of it because you're never fulfilled, you're never satisfied. Because satisfaction comes through encountering and walking with Jesus Christ. The Father is seeking people to worship Him. The Father is seeking people to worship Him. So all of us love the darkness. We're constantly running to our sin, right? But Jesus paid the way for that by dying on the cross. 
He became the propitiation for our sins. He's the one that died on the cross so that we don't have to, we don't have to run to those things anymore. We can worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And so if you're a believer in Christ today, if you find yourself in that category, like if you, if you say, I've trusted in Christ and, and I'm trusting in Christ on a daily basis to sanctify me and to bring me to Himself, I pray that our lives would reflect our satisfaction in Him. That people would be able to look at us and to be able to see that we are completely satisfied in the Christ that is being proclaimed in this text. And I pray that that's, that that's something that we, would be able to, that we would be able to show people around us. Not, because, not necessarily because we want to, but, but just because it's, it's coming out of us. Like there's no way that we can stop it from coming out of us. And that in that, that we would recognize our calling to make disciples of all nations. Like that is, that is our call. I wouldn't say that it's directly commanded in this text, but we know that, it, that it's to be true. And so Why? Because we've been commanded to in the Great Commission and in many other texts in Scripture. And because the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. People to worship in spirit and in truth, just like what we talked about. So we're gonna, we may encounter these hard, callous people. These people that, whom God is pursuing. But they're hard. They're difficult to be around. They're difficult to talk to. And it's, it's difficult sometimes to, to get into that situation. And I don't know about you, but I've, I haven't been given the ability to be able to see into people's lives and to be able to know exactly what's going on just by, just by walking up to a stranger. But Christ has given us His Holy Spirit. He's given us relationships among one another to be able to interact with others. And He's given us His Holy Spirit so that we can cling to Him and so that we will know Him, so that we know Him and we cherish Him above all else. And so that people can see this. And by entrusting in Him, we have the ability to lead our neighbors to Christ, our co-workers, our neighbors, the people that we interact with daily to Christ. So I'm not telling you to try to follow this exact model that Jesus uses in here, and this is not a, this is not a, a sermon to try to tell you, okay, this is exactly where you need to go, and this is how you need to talk to people. I'm trying to tell you to cling to Jesus Christ. Cling to Him. Let people see the hope that we have in Him, and that He will sustain us, and He will keep us, and that He's the one that's going to bring people to know Him. And He's the one that's pursuing people all around us to know Him right now. And also, one more thing, uh, as I was thinking through this text, uh, we have the ability, just like we were talking about earlier, we have the ability to, to be in community with one another. So I would pray that we would continue to stay in community. It's not easy. It's difficult. I know from, from experience, from leading a community group and from just sometimes just not wanting people to be there. Like, you know, Thursday nights come around. Sometimes, I'm sorry, guys. Like, it's just, it's difficult because so many things are going on. Like, I just want to have a, a night to myself. But God is glorified when we come together and when we're probing in on one another, when we're closing in on one another and, and really revealing the, the deep, dark sins that are in our lives. And using those to glorify and honor Christ. 
So I pray that today that we've seen His glory and that He would be praised as who He is. And that's the Savior of the world. And so I, I ask that you would pray with me really quickly.